The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. As you may know, we are beginning uh, our four-week series for Advent, and the subtitle, if you will, uh, is just a declaration of what we're celebrating, and that's that the King has come and is coming. Uh, So let's just start with a little background. Some of this you probably heard in the video before, but uh, we'll just mention it again. It's worth doing. Uh, The word Advent, it has its original or its origin in uh, the medieval Latin word adventus, and what that means is arrival. Uh, For us, it is a time to celebrate and reflect on the fact that Jesus has come, born of a virgin, God incarnate, to deliver us from our slavery to sin and the spiritual death that follows. Um, I personally did not grow up in churches that observed Advent. Um, I think that's mostly because a lot of times Advent is associated with like kind of stuffy, highly liturgical, boring traditions. Um, and that's, you know, maybe it is some places, but it's not here. Uh, as some of the leaders and I began researching and studying the meaning and the purpose of Advent last year, we really became excited about it because what we figured out is it's, it's all about Jesus. And um, here at Love City, we're all about Jesus. And so for us, it's a pretty simple Pretty simple decision. Um, and so what we have now is kind of the, the beautiful privilege of prayerfully crafting our own traditions and kind of how Love City uh, is going to celebrate as a family uh, the Advent season each year. And so that's kind of a wonderful opportunity. We don't have to do it like anybody else has done it. You know, we can see how some people have observed this time and pick the good and throw out the bad. And so we're still kind of in the midst and we have the opportunity over the next several years to uh, be led by the Holy Spirit on what we're going to do. So, um, but we want this time, we want this series, these, these teachings, we want our singing and, and the worship during this time. We want it to draw our thoughts and our focus and attention to what matters most this time of year and uh, every time of year. And that is the fact that Jesus has come and is coming. Amen? Uh, turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3. That's an easy one. It's all the way in the front. And um, as we begin this season of remembering and expecting, uh, I believe it'll be fruitful for us to take a bit of non-traditional journey through some Old Testament passages, and in doing so, bind ourselves together with our ancestors through the shared experience of awaiting the fulfillment of God's promises. Uh, We're going to read verses 14 through 19 in Genesis 3. Uh, And this is commonly known as the curse or the curse of the fall. Uh, Leading up to this, God has created our first parents, Adam and Eve. He's put them in the garden. He's given them a mission and a command, right? So God creates uh, Adam, quickly realizes him being by himself is not good, makes him a woman, and uh, so gives them charge over the garden, over all the animals. They're in charge. God kind of creates earth as this place for him to fellowship with us. It's beautiful. It's perfect. It's wonderful. Um, he gives them the mission of tending to everything, and he also gives them a command. He says, this is all for you. I've given it all to you. I've made this wonderful for you. It's beautiful. There's just, there's just one thing. That tree's mine. Don't touch it. <laughs> Even if somehow 
you've lived in America thus far and not heard this story, I'll bet you could guess how it goes, right? God says, don't touch one thing. What did they do? They touched it. That's right. Yes, they did. So um, that kind of, that's, that's where we find ourselves here in Genesis 3. So it's, it was a little more complicated than that. Satan comes in the form of a serpent. He tempts them. He kind of, he throws questions at them to get them to question God's love for them and God's goodness and intentions towards them. He says things like, well, hold on, did God really say you're going to die? Well, no, that's not what's going to happen. You see, what's going to happen is you'll be like him. And what he begins to tempt Adam and Eve with is this idea that God's holding out on them, that God has withheld some good thing from them that he can now offer them. And I just want to, maybe that seems obvious, but I think it's worth mentioning because every single temptation that we go through All the details might be varied, but the structure and the bones are the same. It's always Satan coming and tempting you and trying to offer you something uh, lesser than and a counterfeit of a good thing God has already said you could have. I'll I'll give you an example. Um, Satan could come and tempt you with an illicit relationship that has nothing to do with the will of God for your life, and the temptation there would be that in this, you could have love. Well, it's a lie. It's a counterfeit. It's a lesser than the perfect and beautiful love that God has already offered. And yet sometimes we get pulled into believing that that over there would be better. It's never true. We kind of get to watch it unfold here in its first case uh, with our first parents. But really, the, the script hasn't changed much. And it, it kind of runs the same in all of our lives, unfortunately. Um, so let's read verses 14 through 19 here, and, uh, and we'll come back across and see what we got. Uh, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then, he, then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. So what we have here is Satan who has tempted God's children to disobey him. And his children who chose to disobey him. Uh, Everybody in the scenario here other than God has sinned, and now God the Father is letting them know what the consequences of those transgressions are going to be. He's laying out for them, here's what's going to happen in lieu of the fact that you've done these things. Um, But notice verse 15. Here's what it says. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So what we see here is, God's, I, I don't know exactly what it looked like. It's all, it seems like everybody's there. They can hear what God is saying to each of them. The, the consequences are being laid out. You've sinned. 
Here's what's going to happen because of it. But notice verse 15. God in his infinite mercy shows us for the first time what we come to learn is his pattern. That even in the midst of his anger and pain over the betrayal that he didn't deserve, and even as he is laying out the cost for that betrayal, he cannot do it without also giving hope. God never just tells us the problem and then leaves us broken and hopeless, but he also gives us at least a glimpse of the solution. Verse 15 is known as the Proto-Evangelion, or the first gospel. And this is the first prophecy that we see that points us towards the seed of the woman who will be injured by Satan, but will ultimately stand upon his head in victory. I'm pretty confident in you guys on this one. Who do you think potentially, Love City, that seed being spoken of could be? Go ahead, say it loud if you know it. That's exactly right. It's King Jesus. I knew you guys knew. Um, it is. It's Jesus. And, and we find ourselves joined together with our forefathers in faith uh, as we experience the joyous tension of anticipation, waiting for all that has gone wrong to be made right, waiting for what is broken to be fixed again, waiting for darkness to give way to light, and waiting on the final and glorious victory of our great God and King, a victory that will come through the fulfilling of a mission that started with a virgin giving birth in a manger. That's what we're waiting for. And all those that have gone before us that trusted God by faith, they've been waiting. And so there's, there, is, there is joy in the anticipation, but some of, you, some of you might have connected all the words that I just said and have a question, and it's a fair one, especially based on most of our experience, but you might say, are you proposing that waiting is joyous? How many of you, if I gave you the option to give me one word to describe for you what waiting is like, that you would choose the word joyous? Uh, probably not. Right, because we tend to be impatient by nature. Um, but waiting can be joyous if it is not stained with pride and impatience. I'll ask it to you this way. I'll try to, try to help us to see how it's potentially true that waiting uh, can have joy to it. What was the last, I want you to think about, what was the last thing that you were genuinely excited about? Just take a moment and think about that. The last thing that you really were looking forward to. For some of you, it was Thanksgiving, because you have a food-centric life, and you're like, there's going to be a lot of food there, and I'm excited about that, right? Uh, for some of you, that was a big deal, right? Smoked turkey. I was on it, excited, days before, thinking, mm, that's going to be good. Um, but... If you think about what the last thing was you were really, really excited about, you, you can begin to understand what I'm talking about. The joy of anticipation and the excitement it builds the closer you get to the event that you're looking forward to. Doesn't it? Have you experienced that before? There's a, there's a palpable, tangible excitement and joy in waiting for something that you're genuinely looking forward to. Celebrating Advent and remembering that Jesus came it renews this sense within us because most of us could not sustain that uh, as we wait for his final coming. And so the beauty of Advent is that every year we come back around and we, there's, this, there's this day of celebration as we remember the birth of Christ, his coming and his incarnation. But what this season of Advent does, hopefully, is it stirs in us again the ability to anticipate and expect the fulfillment of his promises 
with joy. Because most of the time, let's be honest, the thing that we think about most, the thing that we are most anxiously anticipating, the thing that our hope is set upon most vibrantly in the day-to-day tends not to be the final fulfilling of God's promises. Most of the time, other things come in and they grab our attention and they grab our, uh, our tendency towards anticipation. But Advent has this ability to bring us back to that beautiful experience of the joy of waiting, of the joy of looking forward to the fulfilling of the faithful promises of the God who loves us. It's part of why this is a beautiful season. Do you remember, some of you still aren't convinced that there's any joy potential in waiting. So think about it this way. Do you remember when you were a kid, do you remember like when you, somebody finally let you know Christmas was coming? Like your parents held it from you as long as they could, but then like the decorations came out and so now you knew, right? Do you remember what that was like? You remember asking, just bugging the mess out of your parents, when is, when is Christmas? Because like I, I've learned this with Lucy, like she's three, she has no time perception whatsoever. It's so hard to try to explain to her. So like we hide everything from her until the very last minute, whatever we can. Sometimes she'll hear our conversation about something. What are you guys talking about? Nothing. We're not going anywhere. We're not doing anything. Just you go over there. Um, but she just she doesn't have any t- perception of time. And so you know the closest we can get is to give her naps. Lucy, you're 18 naps away, right, from going to Mamaw's house for this such an other event, right? So okay, that seems to satisfy her. But <clears throat> you know, um, <clears throat> when you're a kid, like whatever the event is, it's your birthday or you know Christmas. I don't you know for some reason it's got this probably when you're kids because you're selfish dirt ball and you just want presents, but you know, it, it did, it had this excitement to it, didn't it? Do you remember that? Do you even remember that feeling? Try it, reach back. And I'm not saying, for some of you, it's not so much age, it's that the weight and pressure of life, it takes away the ability to have that childlike anticipation, to, to have that kind of a sense of joy in anything, much less waiting. But in some ways, like, when there's events like that, at least in my own experience, it was the run-up was almost more fun than, than the deal because then it happens and it's, and, it's, and it's over. It's like this, you know, you kind of go way down the hill, but it's like climbing the hill on that roller coaster. Maybe you're just waiting to get to the top, you know? And I know these are a bunch of dumb analogies, but I'm trying to get you to be convinced that part of the joy of Advent <clears throat> is kindling in us again the joy that comes with anticipation. And what we're not looking forward to so much is necessarily this December 25th, though I am looking forward to that because all of this time up to it and the day of, I'll have opportunities to have gospel conversations with people. One of the best missional opportunities we have all year long is Christmas. People are already talking about it. People already know that you know, Jesus is involved, at least hopefully somewhat vaguely, and so you've got a great bridge for gospel conversation for the whole rest of the year, and so I would really ask you to be in serious prayer and, and, and plead with the Holy Spirit to help you to recognize when those opportunities are. Talk to people about Jesus during Advent. That's the other beauty of celebrating Advent, going four weeks back and starting now to try to get our attention away from, you know, uh, <clears throat> Gray Thursday which used to be called Thanksgiving, Black Friday and Cyber Monday and all this other crud and getting our attention back to what this is really all about, which is looking forward to 
the finality of God's promises, the final fulfillment, light triumphing over dark, sin being vanquished, Jesus being crowned king. It's wonderful. Um, this is <clears throat> that feeling that you had as a kid, that buildup of anxious joy coming up to Christmas. It's, it's the same feeling we should have every time we think of King Jesus returning to make all things as they should be as they were before sin brought death and darkness. This is the feeling our forefathers had as they anticipated his promised first coming. And in this way, we're connected to them. Do you see that? That before Jesus came the first time, they were looking for Messiah. And I think in much, their, their anticipation was much more integrated into their overall life because much of their tradition and much of their culture was, was kind of steeped in that they were believing that that Messiah was going to come. And, and they were in situations a lot of times where the only hope they had was that Messiah would come. You see, a lot of times our comfort gets us to the point where we could care less some days if Jesus comes back or not because we're doing pretty good. Or so we think. And that's why I would just caution you not to always assume that if, if you live a life of some level of comfort that that's necessarily always a blessing from the Lord. And I would also encourage you not to think that if you're going through a season of difficulty, to always assume that's not a blessing from the Lord. Because sometimes it is. Sometimes we're put into situations, sometimes we're allowed to walk through times where we remember again where our help comes from. Sometimes we're put in spots where we're allowed to remember again who our provider is. Sometimes we're put into spots where maybe intentionally God is stirring in us again a desire and a hunger and a thirst and anticipation for that day when this is no more and we're with him. I would caution you if a lot of days go by and you feel no stirring, no desire, no anticipation to be with God in that in that forever state that we're promised. Because he says some really good things about it. He's going to wipe every tear from our eye, and it's, there's not going to be any sickness, and there's not going to be any pain, and all of the things that cause us grief, those are going to be gone. And the greatest thing is not these auxiliary promises or these extra bonuses. The greatest thing is that we'll be there with him, the one who's loved us and proved it. Amen. And so we are connected to our forefathers as we share in that anticipation. And don't you feel it? I mean, can't you feel it? The, the dismay that rises when you see injustice. When you see things that are absolutely not fair. That, that sense that it, run, it just runs across the grain. Or the disgust that you feel when sin and depravity leads men and women to do evil and perverse things. Just that sense that you have, it just, it's wrong. Deep down, you feel it. Or the pain that we feel when we experience suffering and the helplessness that we often feel when it comes to the incredible suffering of others. Because we are made in God's image and because our essential essence is that we are an eternal spirit, we yearn for something greater. See, sometimes you think you're just ticked off because, well, that wasn't right, but why? Where does that even come from? Where do you, where do you get a starting point to make that judgment? Where, where, where is that? come from. 
It comes from the fact that we were made in the image of God. That image has been marred by sin, but it's still there. We still have some of his character and his attributes, and some of what hurts his heart hurts our heart. And I think life uh, kind of backs that idea up. We, we yearn for something greater, and we yearn for something better. Something better than the broken shambles that we see around us. But why? That's the question. Why? Why do we yearn for something better? Why is that desire there? Why does it bother us when the innocent are hurt? Why does it bother us when it seems like resources are distributed unfairly? Why does it bother us when little children die? Why does that bother us? Why does it seem wrong? Where do we even have this idea of right and wrong? Where does it come from? C.S. Lewis answered this question masterfully. He said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, then the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And so I'm telling you, the reason you're distraught at the pain of others, the reason you're distraught when evil seems to be triumphing over good, the reason you're distraught when it seems like unfair things are happening, when you see the brokenness that comes from sin, it's because you weren't made for this. And that's what Advent reminds us of. That's what it brings us back to. We come back to this place where we focus our eyes on the future hope of things being the way that they should be. Men and women reconciled in relationship with the God that made them. Sin vanquished, Satan vanquished, sickness vanquished, all of those things that, that run contrary to the goodness and the beauty and the perfection of God. They're gone. We yearn for it. We should. If you don't, then your appetites are off. If you don't, then your appetites have been skewed. If you have no hunger, if you have no desire, if you have no thirst, if you have never joyously felt the anxious expectation of Jesus coming again, then you're too satisfied with something else, dear one. I love you, but I need you to see that, and, and it's, it's very crucial. I know it's Christmas time, so I should have had some cute message about, you know, um, a drummer boy and maybe made some jokes about how smelly it was in the manger probably when Jesus was born and that would have been, would have been a little easier to swallow. But I, I need you to really check. Like, do you ever think about where this is all headed and what happens in your heart when you do? Do you begin to think of all the things, well, I wish, I wish this and such and this other thing would happen before Jesus comes back, before all this thing is finally wrapped up? What what other desires trump the desire that is in us to be reconciled to the God that made us? For all the brokenness to be made right. For all the hurt and the pain to be done forever. That is his final promise. And he, you know, <laughs> a lot of times people will ask, ask questions about heaven, ask questions about eternity. What's it going to be like? And God's so smart. I don't, he, he said a lot less about eternity than I wish he would have, right? I really could, I could have used some more details. I, I, I would have liked to hear more descriptions and like, hey, you know, what are we going to do all day? Because, Lord, we, we tend to argue about that down here. Like, what's it going to be like? But I, he's so smart. I think he, in, in the same way that, you know, 
it's, it's not like it's jumping out of that, that verse 15 in Genesis 3. But, he, but right there is he saying, because you have sinned, there's going to be terrible repercussions. But he, but he weaves into there. Puts that, puts that glimmer of hope. But, yeah, you're gonna, yeah there's going to be one coming, seed of the woman. Yeah, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's, he's going to end up standing on your head. He's going to win. And so from, from that point, they were able to hold onto the hope of that first gospel preached. And I think he's given us enough of a, a foretaste. He's given us enough of a picture of what eternity with him is going to be like that it should spike in us an appetite and a yearning, a forward-looking, joyous anticipation. And let's be honest. We don't think about this all the time, but this is the beauty of Advent. It, for, it forces us to. It forces us back to the joyous privilege of contemplating our final eternity with the King. And it lets us remember what he did so that we could even have potential joy about that promise. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Amen. Okay. Uh, Advent awakens in us a sense that is often overshadowed by our own sin and the darkness of the world. That sense is that there is reason for hope, that there is something to look forward to, that our faith is not in vain, but we will see the light of the glory of God unveiled in his heavenly kingdom because his gospel is true. Advent awakens in us again that hope, sets our eyes towards it. Thankful for it. Let's look at another event that stirred anticipation for our ancestors because what I said that we're doing today is we're just... We're taking kind of an unorthodox journey. We're looking at some points in the Old Testament where glimpses of the future hope were given to those that have gone before us in the faith, and it's, it's what they were holding on to as they went through their journey, looking forward to its fulfillment, the same way that we are. I want us to feel a connection to those that have gone before us, the connection being that we've all had to wait in faith. We've all had the opportunity to feel the joyous tension of anticipation at the fulfilling of God's promises. Uh, we're going to go to Exodus 12. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the commands of God uh, concerning the first Passover meal. And this is at the end of the plagues that God used uh, to break the pride of Pharaoh so that he would release the Israelites from slavery. Um, Moses had given Pharaoh ample opportunity and provided plenty of proof that, God, uh, that the God who was demanding his people be let go was not to be trifled with. Uh, but it wasn't until this last plague that Pharaoh finally got that point. Uh, and so we're going to kind of pick up the story there. Uh, if, you're, if you're not aware, uh, Egypt had enslaved God's people, the Israelites, for uh, a long time, was being very cruel with them. Um, and then God sent Moses to... Uh, be his representative as he handled that problem. And so several plagues had happened. Pharaoh's heart was still hard. And uh, then as we come into Exodus 12, God then gives his people some instructions on what to do in light of the last plague that's coming um, so that they are spared from it. So that's where we pick up the story. So Exodus 12, starting in verse 1, and we're going to read to uh, verse 13, Okay. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. 
It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. You are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from... The sheep or from the goats, you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Um, I can always relate when God commands a barbecue. Very thankful for that. <laughs> Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt." This blood of the spotless lamb that was put on the doorposts um, and protected the Israelites from the curse of death. It is an undeniable foreshadowing of Christ, our perfect lamb, whose blood was shed and ran, da ran down that wooden post that he was nailed to and saved us from the curse of death. Uh, for thousands of years, the people of God um, ate this Passover meal, um, and they were remembering God's faithfulness and deliverance and in so doing, they were building their faith and stirring their anticipation for the fulfillment of his promise of final deliverance through the coming Messiah. For us, as we celebrate Advent, we remember the faithfulness of his first coming, where he came and paid the ransom price that we may be rescued. And as we remember, it stirs in us a joyous anticipation for his final coming, when he will claim us once and for all as his prized possession. You see the similarities. You see how we join together with God's people throughout history. That they would sit and eat that Passover meal, remembering God's faithfulness, and that would stir in them the faith to remember. He was, he was faithful then, and so even though it's been so long, we've not seen this promised Messiah come. I'm going to trust him because he was faithful then. And today we have the opportunity to begin to turn our focus in this Advent season toward remembering his faithfulness in the first coming. And even sometimes when this world gets so dark that sometimes it's, it's hard to believe that he's going to come again and set it all right, we reach back by faith to remember his faithfulness the first time and know that he will not let us down the second. And in so doing this, we share we share and we are bonded together with all those that have gone before us in the faith that is built through joyous expectation. There is joy in waiting. There is benefit to waiting. And that's where we find ourselves.
Why don't we eat Passover anymore? This is kind of an aside, but not really. Why don't we eat Passover anymore? Uh, Because its promise was fulfilled in Christ. I just want to point this out to you. Um, If you haven't found anything to get excited about yet, it's it's coming, okay? So perk up. Here we go. Um, I'm real happy about this. So (laughs) if you read the accounts in Matthew 26 and Luke 22, you see no mention, right? So those two chapters, it talks about um, what's commonly known as the Last Supper. Some of you may only have seen that in a picture, right? It is cool. But that was a picture of an event. The event was the Last Supper where Jesus was eating with his disciples, where he, um, he instituted um, communion. And so in that account, you see no mention of a Passover lamb being on the table. You, you see the bread mentioned, and you see the wine mentioned, but no lamb. And why is that? Why is there no mention of the lamb on the table? Why is lamb not a part of the communion that we take, which is a, a type and a picture of this Passover meal, this last supper? There is no need for a Passover lamb to be on the table because the Passover lamb was at the table. Woo! Come on! I'm tired of y'all staring at me. If you're not going to get excited about that, then you're not going to get excited about anything. Come on now. That is so beautiful to me. They needed no lamb on that table because he was there. He was sitting there with them. And he was about to go. And he was about to shed his blood. The final sacrifice that would ever be needed. And that's why we don't have meat out here at communion. That's why we're able to just celebrate with the bread and the wine. There's no need for us to roast animals anymore, though I kind of wish you'd have figured out a way to leave the meat in it. But, But he didn't. And the reason is beautiful. We need not have lamb on the table because he was there. He was at the table. Thank you, Jesus, that that's true. Thank you, Lord. And I'm so thankful that he instituted communion, that, that those that went before us, they had that Passover meal. They would come to that feast of unleavened bread, and they would have that beautiful tradition of sitting down to have that meal, and it was to cause remembrance. And God made us, and he knows that you know, some people get scared of tradition because there is the potential, and I would even say propensity for humans to replace relationship with tradition. Do you understand what I'm talking about? There are times when it gets so stuffy and regimented and so much of men's extra rules in there that tradition chokes out the Spirit of God. But the overcorrection to that is to totally disregard tradition. God clearly institutes traditions because he knows that we are prone to be distracted. And so communion It's beautiful. It causes us, it brings us the same way it did for our forefathers, that Passover meal, it brings us back to remembrance. And so Advent, we have this this extra, um, this extra motivation and this extra help because of the celebration of the birth of Christ to have our focus and our attention set back. But really, Every week we have that potential. And, and ultimately what I'm saying is God gives us these, these helpers, um, like communion, like, like he did with the Passover meal, and I think like how we should treat Advent. And I think that's, 
it's, it's a gracious gift and it's beautiful, but I think the ultimate goal should be that each day, all the time, our anticipation be set towards the things that we're talking about now, that the thing I look forward to most is not the next meal that I'm really excited about, though it's okay to be excited. Uh, yeah, it's okay. It's okay to be excited about something coming up that you know it's going to be really good. It's okay to be excited about things in this life. I'm excited about getting home because I know, you know, the kids are going to be running around and, and a lot of times Max is just on the other side of the door. And I was telling somebody recently that um, I, I'm totally off track right now, but this is just, I just want to share it with you because you're family. But uh, a lot of times when I open the door, like Max is just now getting to this like, point where he can vocalize. And when I come through the door and, and he doesn't even have to see me because anywhere in the house, it's like he understands, gauges the time about when dad comes home. And as soon as he hears that door crack, I hear from wherever he is in the house, Dah! Like, like this Viking growl, and there's no D on the end. It's just like this really rudimentary grunt. And so um, I like it, and I'm happy about it. And uh, so like, I'm excited to get home, and there's nothing sinful about that. There's nothing wrong with that. I should be excited to spend time with my family. But the thing I should be most excited about all the time, every time, and not just during Advent, is that one day... All that's broken in me will be fixed. All the sin that chains me and binds me will be gone. And I will be reconciled and I will be in full relationship with the God who loves me so much that he made me even though he knew me. And how much trouble I was going to be. And then went so far as to save me by the precious blood of the perfect Lamb of God. Of all my anticipations that one should be greatest. And our great hope is that we have joy in that waiting, not just this time of year. But you wonder what a lot of the traditions are about. What's all the lights about and all of that? It's, it's, to, it's to point us to. Ultimately, what we're going to get to see, man, what I, what I, what I look forward to so much is, is the Bible talks about the radiance of the glory of the unveiled face of God. There is no need for a big ball of burning gas called a son, when we're in his presence. His glory is so radiant, <laughs> he'll be the light source. Look forward to that. Just look forward to being with him. You know what's, you know what's even wilder than that? He looks forward to being with us. Whew. If you need a reason, dear one, to get real thankful all the way deep down in your heart. Just think about that. As we struggle to be joyous in our anticipation, do you know that God waits anxiously for that day when full reconciliation with the children he loves is accomplished? You know that. He's looking forward to having us. Sitting around his table. What a day. The instrument of salvation, once that... That last supper with Jesus, once that whole thing played out, the instrument of salvation was no longer the blood of an animal, but the precious blood of the perfect Lamb of God. No need for animal sacrifice any longer. Um, and in this, and in this beautiful imagery, we see the very heart and thrust of the gospel. And so, you know, we've, in our journey through the Old Testament, we've almost been completely in the midst of, of, a, 
a beautiful and plain description of the gospel, but I just, I just want to make sure the details are clear in case there's somebody here that maybe has not understood what the good news of the gospel is. I was just talking to somebody last night about how it, it, it utterly uh, just amazes me how many folks I encounter that, you know, we, we talk about and we want to give towards and we're going to unreached people groups that, you know, we need to translate the Bible in their language so they can hear the good news about Jesus. And I am all for that and we should totally care about that. And if we don't, we should be ashamed of ourselves. But like, guys, I meet people in this country all the time that have never heard the gospel. I meet people in this country all the time that have been in church, and whatever that means, their whole life, and never heard the gospel. And so if you wonder why there seems to be this intentional, like we don't get out of any time with the word of God cracked open without plainly the gospel being stated, it's because it's important. Like if we don't get that, then none of the rest of this matters. What is Advent other than some pretty songs if the gospel's not understood? Amen? And so the gospel is this. You'll recognize some of the elements if you've been here today. God made man, made him, made him perfect. There was no sin. Gave him the option. Obey me or don't. <laughs> we didn't. We chose something else. We thought we knew better. We sinned. The Bible says from that point, we read that, that curse that happened, but even at that very first doling out of the consequences of sin, God was still prophesying and giving his people hope that one day there's going to be a seed that's going to make all things right. And so we see that um, man sinned, but that God had a plan. And um, what we see happening there in Genesis is man going from perfect and then able to be in relationship with God to imperfect. And because of that imperfection, God is perfect he cannot be mixed with light and dark don't mix. He cannot, he cannot fellowship with imperfect humans. And so that created a serious problem. It essentially put us on two sides of a chasm. Um, but thankfully, God's a master bridge builder. We couldn't do it. We couldn't fix it. All of our efforts would have never fixed the problem. We could not solve it. We were utterly, hopelessly uh, dead in our sins is what Romans says. We can, once, once, once we are imperfect, um, we can't make ourselves perfect again. And all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's very clear. And so, okay, all of that, let me, I'll just boil it down and make it more simple. You're not perfect. That was worth the price of admission, wasn't it? If you didn't get anything else today, you're not perfect. And that's a problem. From the Bible standpoint, because of your imperfection, you are separated from God by sin. Okay, see, a lot of people have this messed up idea that if they're like at least somewhat better than someone else, then, well, God will probably, you know, we can be cool. No, we are all in a desperately bad situation. But God had a solution. That's why he sent Jesus. That's why Jesus came, born of a virgin. That's why Jesus lived a perfect life. He did what was required of all of us, but none of us did it. He lived the perfect life. That's what qualified him to be able to step in, to be that spotless Passover lamb, to be the one who was qualified to be able to shed his blood, to stand in our place, to pay the price that we should have paid. That's why he could do it, and he did. Because of that, he subjected himself, let himself be nailed to a cross, let himself be murdered so that his blood would flow 
and the, the ransom would be paid so that all of us could be made righteous through his act. That, and God does that by faith. It's not that, it's not that um, we go, come behind and do what Jesus did. What the Bible says clearly is that the way I receive what Jesus did, the way I become uh, able to be counted as righteous again is not by doing a bunch of good things, but by trusting in the good thing Jesus did. And so he did the work, and I get to trust in that by faith. I realize that doesn't seem right because nothing else in, in life works like that, but that is, that is what the Bible, which is the only way we have any idea to know what God thinks about anything, that's what it says. And so I'm telling you the best news you've ever heard. That is the gospel. You can be saved by faith. It's, it's by grace. It's by the mercy of God. It's totally unmerited, not something you could earn. Jesus also didn't stay dead. That's, we'll, get, we'll get real happy and party a lot more when Easter comes too, because that's a big deal for us, right? The king of glory didn't stay dead. Death, death couldn't hold him. It had no claim to him because of his perfection, because of who he was. And so he rose three days later. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us, and he's waiting. He's waiting, joyously anticipating the day when we are reconciled, when he gets to see the fruit of his labor, when he gets to see the fruit of his finished work, and that's, he gets to have us, and we get to have him. I just invite you to that today. I would invite you to put faith in what the Bible says is true. I would invite you into relationship with the God who made you and loves you. Please don't reject him anymore. Please don't stay away from him because you think you've got to clean yourself up first. You, you'll never get it done. Please, today, realize that you can admit that you're a sinner and submit to his lordship. And that he will lovingly take you from darkness to light and from death to life. You can pray today and you can ask God to save you. You can, you can admit to him that you know you're imperfect and you can ask for him to be your Lord and your King and he'll do that. He'll change you right where you are right now. And I'm just inviting you to that because we love you. Please trust Jesus. He's worth it and he's worthy of it. May we be a people who are able to experience the joyous tension of anticipation. May we never forget that we come from a long line of faithful men and women who lived in the balance of remembering God's faithfulness and awaiting God's faithfulness. May nothing and no one stir in us the kind of hopeful expectation that the promise of eternity with our Savior King does. And may we enjoy the wait. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. Lord, we love you. Lord God, I thank you that we are not the first to wait on you. God, I ask that you would stir in us this Advent season a joy and a looking forward to that day. That day when all of the promises are finally fulfilled. And Lord God, I ask that you would also stir in us affection as we remember that you've already fulfilled so many promises. As we remember the fulfillment 
of your promise to come as a Messiah, as a Savior, to come and to lay yourself down, to come and be a shepherd that would sacrifice himself for the sake of the sheep. Thank you that you have come, that you've done everything you said you would. And I thank you that you are coming, that you will do everything you've said you will. Lord, let us, let us live out of an overflow of gratitude and joy because of your faithfulness. Let us remember it in this season. Let us talk about it every chance we get. God, I ask that you would pave the way for us to have fruitful gospel conversations this Advent season. God, please don't let this incredible opportunity just get by us. Please don't let us do what we're so prone to do and get distracted by everything else that just doesn't matter. But please, God, let us be so enamored with the fact that you've come and that you're coming that we would walk with such joy and such peace. And, and God, that it would... It would, it would be tangible and thus cause curiosity in those around us and that it would open up the opportunity for us to share in our hope and give us the boldness fueled by love to do it. Please be glorified, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.